These are the chronicles of the journey we take together. The journey of Steamheart, and one we invite you to take with us through Through the the wind wind door. Hello, dear listeners, and welcome back to another episode of Through the Wind Door with your friends Gig and Toby. I I guess apparently going back to old methods of introduction, being that I don't know how long it's been since you heard us talk again, we're getting away from our one episode a week tendency at this point. We advance at the rates at which there's fuel in the tank. Yeah, exactly. What's going on here is that we started out this season trying to be fresh and do things a little bit differently, but at this point, it's more important to me to get the meat of what's going on here rather than try Mm. to be fresh and clever and everything like that. There's still going to be some alternate beginnings, but given that I'm giving myself extra time to get these episodes out, I'm going to take a little bit more time with honing the craft, so to speak in order to make those alternate beginnings particularly special and everything. We are starting to get into the story proper. Just like we talked about for Chapter 15, we're going to see more and more chapters of Steamheart that are shaped to feel like episodes of an ongoing TV show. We can understand why, given its influences, but to a certain extent, the audio drama has always felt like that. Yes, your average chapter tends to run between only 50 to 20 minutes apiece, with larger episodes being no longer than a half hour. But they were also released to the public weekly, not unlike a television show. And there has been a lot of discourse of the benefits of this method, rather than releasing it all at once for people to binge, so to speak. New Century, therefore, makes for an odd hybrid, and I'd never really considered if it feels less like a traditional novel when it's so often built for the eventual week-on-week release. Yes, there has been more than one occasion where the format of the book was altered for the audio drama release. The ending of a specific chapter doesn't work as well as a good resolution or cliffhanger for the audio drama audience, or individual chapters can either be too long or too short when voice acted out. In the case of Stone Spring Maidens, The release of chapters that might have worked fine for a book format were confusing for the spaced-out delivery week-on-week for the audio drama audience. How does this reflect on our coverage for Steamheart and Beyond? If you look back through Through the Wind Door's past, it's always been a mishmash of chaos and order. I present an outline to Toby, based on the number of chapters we want to cover, and depending on how many topics I present, and how long we go on each topic, We could cover five chapters in two weeks, or it could take us over a month to do the same. More recently, you've been seeing a lot more of the one chapter taking up about 45 minutes to an hour's worth of discussion. But now that this podcast is moving away from the one episode a week model, it means I may also change how long individual episodes are. Never mind that, as always, some episodes may just have less to dig into. Much as I love Chapter 20, it works better as an individual experience, 
rather than a rich web of multiple topics to expand on. Just like Alex, it's all about doing my best to make each episode worth listening to, after we've provided the conversation to be shaped. That bit of bookkeeping out of the way, I return you to our show in progress. This time around, we're going to be talking about chapters 17 through 20, and chapter 17 is emblematic of a very specific, almost a bottle episode idea, much like we had talked about previously, in that we have the stage performance of a story that exists within New Century, but done with a different kind of dramatic and almost humorous flair. It has a special place in my heart. It's not my favorite of the Steamheart chapters, but it ranks up there because it works on multiple textual and metatextual levels. First of all, the example of this kind of bottle episode is most thoroughly emblemized by The Last Airbender. It differs from Ember Island players in that the propaganda is in service to our heroes rather than mocking them, and yet still manages to insert some humor in there by exaggerating Abigail and James, even as it lionizes Catherine Holloway as the heroine of the piece. It's exactly the right amount of homage while still doing its own thing, both in terms of the story and in terms of what is going on in the world of New Century. It successfully steers away from direct replication of Ember Island players by striving for a different emotional conclusion from that episode. And like for as much as like that episode has very quotable lines, like the behold, the great divide, eh, let's keep flying. <laughs> just moments that for the fans just like will endure forever. I'd forgotten about that moment. That's very sort of on on the other hand, let's not go to Camelot. It is a silly place. <laughs> yes, it's the it's the show acknowledging what its one disposable throwaway episode was. So it's things like that where people really enjoy that and they love getting to that. As fun as it was, we do forget that it's quite a melancholy slice of the show, even with the little bits of self-acceptance working its way in there, because that episode is an expression of apprehension before the show's true finale, where the characters contemplate the road travelled up till this point with you know, tongue-in-cheek derision, but there is a fear of the unknown future that lies ahead and the real possibility that it's not a given that it will go their way. That actually makes it very appropriate, considering mm. where we are in the story. Mm. Although, to, to, to a certain extent, it actually works to an opposite degree. The yeah. journey has barely begun at this point, mm. but... By revisiting a part of their past, that sort of allows them to come to terms with the goals they have going forward. It very deliberately acts as a morale-boosting exercise for Harry more than anything, which is unusual considering she doesn't have an emotional connection to this story the way James and Abigail do, or even the way... Annie and Frank might, given their familiarity with Catherine Holloway and her story, thanks to their visiting of Weirwood back in the day. To a, a separate extent, I feel like, and we can talk more about this as stuff goes on, the unusual aspect 
is I think partly because this is a new experience for Harry. It's something that she wouldn't necessarily have gotten for herself without taking that first step of like moving into the rest of the world. That's one of the things we talked about back during our opening is that even as Harry set herself up as being a significant component for the team, thanks to her actions in Arlington, she's still very isolated, partly due to her own choices, but also partly due to Thomas's choices. And this is giving her the opportunity to actually live at this point and experience the world the way a lot of her contemporaries would. This is something that I imagine that Harry has not experienced before. Like, I just don't think that it's likely that Thomas would have felt comfortable attending a theatre, particularly a theatre with his children and family. And if he did consider broaching it, would he have thought it's something that justified the security risk? So, like, Harry is someone who feels comforted and fulfilled by the recognition of something being constructed to meet a particular need. Mm. On And on top of all the other emotional trauma of just her losing her parents, I'd posit that one of the most prominent feelings that the Arlington's assassination left in Harry is an utterly shattering clash of this reality, that it, there's just a sheer needlessness of these deaths well not just not just that but it's like it's a direct representation of her safety net being taken away Mm. these are the people that have protected her her entire life and given her room to flourish absolutely And and now that's not something she can ever return to she has to figure out how to thrive to a certain extent on her own Truth will continue to be there for her, but it's clear to a certain extent that Truth and Harry's relationship has never been as strong, or at least has been marked more by their differences rather than Thomas and Sarah's acceptance of Harry being who she is. Truth is very much a person of the modern world, Mm. whereas... Harry, up till this point, is very much, she crafts her own internal world, and now she is attempting to reconcile her internal self with the world she is forced to live in, and will be hmm. continued to force to live in, being that, you know, there's um, there's going to be some more books down the road that are going to talk about Harry's experience in that regard. Mentioning that there are future books involving Harry may feel a bit like spoiler territory, given some of our earlier mention making much of how Annie said not all of them will be returning from the journey of Steamheart. But there's only so much I can keep secret, since Stone Spring Maidens has been fully released at this point, and you may have noticed Toby and I have talked a lot about it in various ways. A slightly bigger can of worms is that some of the assertions I made regarding Truth and Harry are based on some of the content of that future book, not to mention side conversations with the actors involved with those characters. Try as hard as we might, we're going to slip up from time to time and have conversations based on our greater understanding of the characters and their motivations, even if we don't reveal the details of how we might have come to these conclusions 
based on, well, details not in evidence so far. But to add to the conversation in ways that can be based on what the stories have told us, I would go on to wonder if Harry feels guilty that she wasn't there. Losing someone important to you is never easy, regardless of the situation, even if the reason for it is simply natural causes. But just as Thomas and Sarah put a lot into protecting their children, Harry is also defined by trying to protect her family right back. We never see into her head during all this time aside from that one moment of crying, and one could wonder if she was feeling like she should have been there to protect them, or perhaps wondering how her marvelous armor could have failed to do so. In the end, the individual details may not matter, but as you may have noticed, we like to speculate, and so we do. That will be, first and foremost, the main thing that shapes her about losing her parents. Of course it will. I think it's also just the feeling that there has been this clashing of something that she values, that she defines her own existence in, of just meeting and fulfilling needs. And this is something that just doesn't make any logical sense. She's someone who sees this and it just challenges everything that she works in and values but here at least she sees a need that is being fulfilled people are struggling many of them would have lost plenty over the intervening years and productions like this play instill something primal in them that helps those folks just lift themselves up and move forward Mm. And it being tied to a book that was edited and published by her parents is all the more soothing to the soul for her. Mm. Yeah, that does make sense. Also, I love how we're getting on the subject of Harry's needs, given what some of our conversation is going to lead to a little bit further down mm. the road. But uh, for yeah. now, let's get back. Not there yet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Let's get back a little bit to the significance of Winds of Virginia. Mm. Is this episode of ours technically going to be called Through the Winds of Virginia? <laughs> you know, if I was clever, oh my I would God. do something with that. But yes. Are there like parody versions of us who are like doing fan podcasts of uh, the Winds of Virginia? <clears throat> and we just listen to it and it's like, what? That that observation is completely off base and unfounded on anything. <laughs> See, here's the thing. There was a great little joke at one point. I think it was Alexa and somebody else, maybe um, Nama, that were specifically <laughs> saying, we need to come up with our own uh, competing podcast. And in order to differentiate it, we're going to invite people on it that have only voiced a couple of lines throughout New Century rather than the major characters. The bastards are encroaching on that territory. <laughs> Well, okay, so now we've established... Oh, wait, you haven't watched um, Multiverse of Madness yet, have you? Not yet. Uh, okay. Uh, I think that at this point it will likely be when it comes to Disney+. Plus. Yeah, okay, fair enough. Which, it, it's honestly, it's only about a month away at this point, I think. It's not a, really much of a spoiler, but like one of the conceits is that every time people dream, they are potentially dreaming of stuff happening in another part of the multiverse. So, uh... On, on that level, I, honestly, the things, the stuff that I'm dreaming about have nothing to do with the podcast, unfortunately. But yeah. <laughs> 
So Windsor, Virginia. Yeah. So while this chapter does touch on like a lot of those mocking, exaggerated characters of the main cast, like you mentioned, you know, you have Abigail's counterpart just say, I like punching. <laughs> and the you know, the foppish fish and chips James that we see on stage. It acknowledges the capacity for broad entertainment to do some spiritual good, even if it's aiming for surface level emotional stimulation. It's undeniably propaganda, and you can see the fingerprints of its manipulative intentions all over. But when the message of the propaganda is constructed to elicit a reaction, specifically to encourage the audience to be active, to idolize constructive collaboration, it ends up being exactly what our team need to hear. As such, the theme of the chapter seems to be that if a piece of media resonates and helps you in a time of crisis, it has value, even if it is simple or flawed in some way, or it has some insidious motivation behind it. We shouldn't turn a blind eye to any of that, but we should nevertheless cherish and nurture the good and positivity that does come out of such cultural artifacts. It's intriguing because saying those words, it sort of makes me feel a little bit like that's a commentary on the MO of school of movies or really of any discussion of media. This is something that's been going on and on, particularly with regards to phase four MCU media properties, that mm. a lot of them feel like more of a mixed bag than some of the stuff that's come before that has some really significant good parts, like we've talked about ourselves, actually, in some of those outtakes people might have heard, the good parts of Black Widow as opposed to the bad or even forgettable aspects of that movie, or of the way people feel about Eternals or any of the MCU TV and everything like that. Not that I want to get off on too much of a side tangent, because this is not an MCU podcast. But, because New Century is influenced by the MCU, most of the stories of this world feel as akin to the best that the MCU has ever produced. Even some of the lesser stories are equivalent to the movies that I mostly enjoyed. You can hear for yourself some of my thoughts on Phase 4. I was a guest on the shows for Falcon and the Winter Soldier, What If, and Hawkeye, and Alex and Sharon spoke with other guests on all the others. But the phenomenon I am referring to is based around this feeling like the more I sit with the Phase 4 stuff, the less strong I feel about each successive outing, and how many reservations I have to put into even overall liking a show or movie. The New Century book that I had the most reservations about, Nightfall of the Wendigo, feels still stronger than some of these recent works. There really has been nothing that's come out in Phase 4, that feels like an unalloyed good, per se. So therefore, that sort of conversation has to say, there were some good things that happened here that were intentional. There was some stuff that we took away from it that you know is mm. due to our own personal reading, what this means to us, which is something that you and I talk about all the time in regards to New Century in particular. Uh, mm. And then there's just like, the stuff that we feel are missteps that make this experience disappointing on some level. You can twist yourself in knots trying to find some empirical metric of the technical quality of a piece and say, 
these things have some good bits, but we have to have qualifiers of what is going on because if that's the case, then you're just sort of like you can't really ever reach some actual conclusion on it just a series of this but that but that but those it's much more i think beneficial to ourselves and to just conversation about this that we don't prize some empirical assessment of a story's qualities beyond the subjective but actually prioritize that subjective response and communicate our own individual responses to things that you can say this made me feel that and it could be that for the most part a film doesn't really get anything out of you but a small chunk of it means something to you and it exploring what that is and what effect it has on you is kind of the best way forward even if you have media that doesn't help matters by being a sort of uncomplicated great thing it has Mm. to be bound up in all sorts of qualifiers and things like that i think that's the way we can reconcile media that we take some real important emotional strength out of but nevertheless can acknowledge yeah like it's absolutely all these other things that will put some people off it Mm. On the subject of pieces of media that will put people off, something that I was not aware of in terms of Catherine Holloway's story as first sort of sideways depicted as a part of the cartographer's handbook and secret rooms, but also something that is made perhaps more explicit in this retelling through the winds of Virginia Her story is supposed to be based on the novel slash the movie Gone with the Wit. If there was a movie that could have been said to have been thoroughly memed even before the internet, it would be this one. I know about it not through personal experience, but because the comedians Ryan Stiles, Colin Mockery, and Wayne Brady of Whose Line Is It Anyway fame love to base jokes on memorable lines from the movie. Moments from it are referenced seriously in media and joked about in media. It received 10 Academy Awards. It's in clip shows, the most iconic movies ever released. And based on what I've heard about both the general plot and the way it glorifies slavery and the cause of the Confederacy, I will never see it. I cannot imagine the movie has any value that will not be outweighed by my absolute disgust for load-bearing parts of the story. And yet, at the same time, I have to have a grudging respect for it. Not for the movie itself, as much as the fact that it was clearly impetus for Alex's earliest ideas for New Century. I have a much greater appreciation for Gothic storytelling as a result of Alex's works. And Gone with the Wind is very much rooted in the Southern Gothic flavor. Catherine's story is a reimagining of the old classic, repurposed to give a story I can enjoy and find compelling. Hell, in 2022, Steamheart itself could be considered a version of Firefly that is likewise far better than the original. Finally, because of the nature of Windsor, Virginia, it bears far more of a resemblance to Gone with the Wind than the tale of Weirwood, giving emphasis to the romance between Catherine and Beauregard. As a result, I don't feel like I ever need to see the original. 
it served its purpose by being the foundation for something better, and this homage to it in Steamheart is all the credit it ever needs. If the original testimonial of Catherine's life story was a distilling of the emotions and positive takeaways of Gone with the Wind, then this is a tongue-in-cheek joking pastiche of that film, though even still not without some of those foundational emotional tugs at the heart of Catherine's story and what that film is able to leave people feeling its place in history is because it has this profoundly like jabbing at people's hearts at a time Mm. when grand romantic ethics were profoundly few in number. Mm. So that effect must have just been really pronounced. Like when we see and feel something really new today, like it sticks with you. So imagine in this, these early days of cinema, something going as big as grand that, and as, epic as it does that people still sort of talk about it and discuss its merits its like successes its drawbacks the things about it that don't work in this current age at a point when people were honestly still figuring out how to do these kind of stories sorry toby there's an obvious joke here and as editor i am morally obligated to do it mr gable frankly my dear i don't give a damn Thank you. Toby, I return the floor to you. That's kind of possibly giving it too much benefit of the doubt, but I think it is nevertheless something to say that like it was able to achieve that and to some extent still can for certain audiences. That's mm. remarkable for something 80 years old now. I mean, the love story in Winds Over Virginia is distinctly less unproblematic because oh, yeah. here... It's all about the feelings that two young people had for each other. And when their life didn't go as planned, they still managed to forge a life together. For those like me that never saw the movie, the lead of Gone with the Wind pursues relationships with three or four different men over the course of the story for varying reasons. Just from a perusal of the basic plot, she seems to come across as far less sympathetic overall than Catherine. Even though, as you go on to mention in your own notes, the experience of Windsor, Virginia is far more romanticized than the actual truth of what happens. It's clear from Catherine's story all the way back in Cartographer's Handbook that she didn't stop loving Beauregard, even though she was in some ways more of a caretaker of him rather than it being a true partnership throughout the later portion of their life together. Mm. Just the way Sharon, or for many people's experiences, the way we hear Maya break up as she talks about finding Beauregard's body, how can you not be torn up by that? And likewise, how can you not believe that she truly did still love him? The results in Windsor, Virginia are similar, but in order for it to give the audience in the story the closure, it needs to feel like this is still the culmination of a great love story that can buoy people up rather than bring them down. The Cartographer's Handbook was still a form of propaganda, but to a certain extent, one can see how Thomas's attempt at delivering 
as much truth as possible as a part of his work could be considered more than a little bit detached. Not not even just detached, but just like in terms of this is the actual facts of what happened. And we see people surviving in spite of it, but it mm. puts a lot of weight on the cost and doesn't try to pretty up any of it. There are a lot of stories in the cartographer's handbook that come to bad ends. Thomas's goal was different than this stage play. He wanted to provide a hero that Southerners could believe in, but focused on the duty to your fellow American, rather than a great love story that might appeal more to his audience. He might have considered it as being too manipulative, what with his overall concern for an objective truth as being a better motivator. There's a romance and tragedy that creates a poignancy to Catherine's story that mm. I think is particularly potent in contrast and comparison with the other stories of the cartographer's handbook. And in a strange way, having a story that does have successes to it, but is trapped in this romantic bittersweet loss of life does actually result in some of these really inspiring stories that incite people to action or just they appeal to the romantic in people even in very cynical people and it makes me think very much of titanic and how that film has a similar feeling of a romance at its heart which is much more sort of heavily dialed on the cinematic romance that is this kind of impossible sharpness but sold through performance and just the human elements of that film mm. and then it ends with spoilers i'm sorry everyone one of the people involved dying mm. and i did but <laughs> but it is not a complete and total loss the success and the victory of the film is in Rose being able to live and not just that but live freely mm -hmm. which was not always a given in both stories that's what you take away is that there was something that was really beautiful and worthwhile that came out of this and that the thing that you lost hurts because it had this truth to it which I'm afraid can only make me think of that one bit in the final Hobbit film of just, why does it hurt so much? Because it was real. And it's like, <laughs> God damn it, that is actually kind of the point I'm making here, isn't it? Mm -hmm. In Winds of Virginia, you're having a very similar story that is told in a much more melodrama kind mm -hmm. of way. And as much as it still has its own element of poignancy, it is a bit more comical. Beauregard's death in reality is this silent, unseen, and cruel snuffing of life that Catherine doesn't get to have that closure. She just sees the aftermath and has mm -hmm. to conclude from what she sees what his last moments were. And in this, you get to hear the full indulgent melodrama of him playing out that old favourite of at least I got to see you one last time. Off than fall over dead. I'm not quite on a Deadpool 2 level, but still, mm. as you say, over-egging the pudding. Yeah, it is very much so. And 
the fact that it even has I never know the name of it, but that sad trumpet over the battlefield uh music oh, which taps. Yeah. Which would not have felt as overplayed to a 19th century audience. I think it would actually be much closer to the somber intent of the original music. But in fact, I haven't actually checked to see like when that piece of music originally was conceived. Technically, it was conceived recently, as this version of Taps was crafted by none other than Kevin MacLeod. But the original bugle call was a variation made specifically to signal the extinguishing of military camp lights during the Civil War by both sides. It was later appropriated as thematic to military funerals after being used as a replacement to traditional gunfire salute by Captain Tidball at Harrison's Landing in 1862. It became a standard component to military funerals in 1891, so the idea of someone using it here for the stage play is not acronistic at all. Hmm. The point is, to our modern sensibilities of us, the reader, the audience listening to it, it absolutely feels like we're going for every cliche in the book to make this death like hurt the audience, even though we're indulging in a lot of the things that people are gratified by in this. It's not cruel snuffing out of life without any words being shared it's giving us that the trinity being stabbed and then having five minutes of conversation afterwards that level of uh, fulfillment even if we're having something taken away from us something we've already alluded to in our conversation about the importance of the premise of this episode uh, before we get to that part i do want to point out that it's intriguing to me that you brought up titanic Specifically because for those people that have listened to Alex and Sharon discuss Titanic on School of Movies, I didn't think I realized until Alex went out of his way to point it out, there are a lot of elements from Titanic throughout New Century, and to a certain extent, Catherine Holloway's story does in some part bear a certain amount of resemblance to... I'm suddenly forgetting her name. Kate Winslet's arc. The name Rose? Yeah, sorry, Rose. Leonardo DiCaprio only shouts it like 50, 100 times in the film. It's all right. Look, I've only seen it once at this point. Give me a break. <laughs> um, the similarity of Rose's arc and what she has to learn and what she has to experience does have some resemblance to what Catherine is going through in terms of trying to survive in spite of all of these obstacles that are put in her way. It's mm. just that Rose pretty much only has Jack's help throughout all of this, whereas Catherine manages to build her own support network and find the resolve inside herself because she mm. isn't getting as much support from Beauregard. He rises to the occasion when... Weirwood has to be founded and protected, but we don't see private conversations between the two. We don't really know how much intimacy there is between the two of them. We mm. have that one moment where he's quiet in the library, where we're introduced to him through the interactions of Abby and James and Lucy. Um, and and we don't, friends. yeah, and we don't hear him speak once. So we don't get a good sense of 
who he is inside. All of our characterization of him is through what Catherine has to say about him. Um, mm. So we kind of have to fill in the blanks a little bit. There's an absence to his character, mm. both in the sense that like he had to go away for war, and when he came back, it was as if he hadn't really fully, not all of him came back. No. And then when you start to see there's actually a few bits of the old man that he used to be coming back, it's a lovely instance of something that happens a lot in the New Century books. He is inspired by her. A female character's actions are something that inspires men, and that's important. That It doesn't have to be on a official government leadership position or a military leader position, though we certainly could do with more women being in positions of power. It's just more that we get to see people in their personal lives being inspired by the women around them. And that's a really good message to, sh to keep emphasizing. It is not about rejecting the feminine to in order to be a good man. It is about mm -hmm. actually drawing the wisdom of everything and being able to choose what kind of life you want to live out of that. By the end of it, we get the feeling that the best version of this person did shine through and he fought hard while he could. And now Catherine is keeping the fight going in his absence. So it becomes this feedback loop of he was inspired by her and now she is inspired by him. I do want to take a moment to point out that a man being inspired by a woman to be a better version of himself isn't actually that new. Jack Nicholson's character uses those exact words in As Good As It Gets, but it feels in that case like it's something he says because he desires her approval. I grew up reading the Spencer novels by Robert B. Parker, an attempt at modernizing the old-school pulp novels of the 40s in the modern era of the late 20th and early 21st century. Those books were about a very masculine and self-sufficient private detective trying to incorporate the feminine into him through the wisdom and the values of his girlfriend, Susan Silverman. She was a psychiatrist, and therefore her insight was invaluable to better understand the personalities of the people he dealt with, as well as provide the emotional labor for Spencer to work on his own internal issues. But as inspirational as the books were, it still very much separated out the masculine and the feminine into expected roles. Men acted and women advised. The more recent change is seeing women being as free to actualize themselves in all the same roles as men do, and for the men to likewise be the supporting figure behind the women, or alternatively, to be the one that learns from the actions of women rather than just their words. Mad Max Fury Road is very much an example of the latter where Max Rakotansky manages to care about something other than his survival, thanks to both the words and actions of Furiosa. Inside New Century, there are no expected roles. You can be male, female, or even non-binary, and have the freedom to be subject rather than merely object. You can act or you can support, nurture or defend, create or destroy. I never feel like the protagonists of these stories are truly limited by their situation. And therefore, 
I never end up disappointed by a lackluster character development, like happens in so much other media. As you yourself alluded to a moment ago, it could well be, and, and again, this is me extrapolating a great deal, and I'm shocked we never really got into this during Cartographer's Handbook or anything like that. He may have felt to a certain extent like his life was over after the war, but yes. seeing the example that Catherine was setting in terms of refusing to lay down and die, the mm. idea that he contributed to the defense of Weirwood because of the example that Catherine was setting, I like that kind of duality. Her actions bring him back to life to provide mm. what support he can for the woman that loves him. Exactly. Ooh, okay. Well, I'll, as as we mean to go on, we're uh, managing to find some shocking discussion details uh, mm. that outshine the outline that I've set up for us here. <laughs> well, the chapter is set up to be a sort of like a reminder of one of mm. New Century's up to this point best self-contained stories. So it's going to cause us to re-examine and just by contrast to what we see being mishandled almost comedically in this, we get to appreciate the original story more, mm. but without having it be just boiled down to a clip show where we go over everything that we had already gone through before. Yeah. The entire premise of this episode, and this is part of the reason why I say this is a favorite moment in New Century for me, is that it's exemplary of one of its major themes. After the crushing weight of the previous chapter, the in-world story of Windsor, Virginia, is the story of hope in the face of tragedy that our heroes need in order to continue on. And that's one of the premises of Steamheart as a story itself. It was completed mid-2019, after over three years of Trump, and the societal turmoil that accompanied him and his rabid followers. In the midst of a toxic and further decaying status quo, we need fiction that helps us not merely to take us out of our real-world stresses, but to give us the hope and ability we need to persevere. Everybody needs those stories. What uh, Alex had referred to as, we need wartime stories and we need peacetime stories. This chapter, therefore, is the in-world representation of that. Fucking spot on. I, I can't really add much more to that. It is an in-world expression of hope, and also the meta-hope that this is what the ongoing story of New Century, as it progresses, can accomplish for, to be honest, I was going to just say the audience, but also for the author, I expect. Mm. Yeah. Alex has mentioned on more than one occasion that the creation of New Century is a little bit like therapy to him. It's not unheard of in terms of the stuff that other directors have put out. It's been talked about many times about the themes that certain directors like Spielberg return to because of unresolved or difficult stuff from their own past that they feel the need to put on the screen. The ongoing themes of New Century are also the ongoing themes that are very important to Alex. 
And the things that are foremost in his brain very often shape the way stories evolve, sometimes needing to go back and alter things that he feels didn't express himself properly in terms of the message that he wanted to put out there. And it's also not just about fixing mistakes. It's about using the wisdom you gained along the way to do better. As a separate illustration, here's a penny in the jar quote from Alan Alda in season seven of The West Wing. I'd probably do a lot of things differently if I could do them over again. But my job is to make the best decision I can with the information I have at the time. You know, if you do something for 26 years, you should keep getting better at it. I'm better than I used to be because I have better information. I have more experience making tough decisions. And I have more mature judgment. When you're an author, entertaining is important. But a good creator understands the effect that a story can have on its audience. And so therefore, leaving them with a message, especially when that is your attention, rather than to merely oh, I thought this might be a fun story to tell. There is mm. a certain, not to put too fine a point on it, but with great power comes great responsibility, Toby. I would chastise you, but I was going to make a joke earlier about how the influences of Titanic throughout New Century spread near, far, wherever you are. So I, oh my I, can, God. Hardly, <laughs> I can hardly call you out on that. Okay, but, fair enough. <laughs> But that is what this series has been and will be for us as well. And that's why, like, this show helps. We don't do this for Alex to be able to hear, like, what these stories mean. We say it because it's a way for us to process our own shit. Mm. Yeah, exactly. I'm very grateful for that. Maybe it goes without saying, but I'll say it anyway. There's a cyclical aspect to Alex and Sharon making a podcast explaining the media they love, gaining a following, making a new century, and then Toby and I explaining why we love that, using School of Movies as a template for how best to do so. We felt a need to say it, Mm. and like Harry, we found a way to meet that need. Yeah. Before we move on, Greg, to the I next... love these little chaos bits that come out. Like, <laughs> it's wonderful. I, I wouldn't trade it for the world. Yeah, yeah. Before we move on to the next chapter, I also want to say one of the highlights of this one is it gives us our first inkling of what Abigail Gray will be at her best. Not simply a warrior for what is right, but someone able to use words as much as her fists to achieve it. You know, we've already made the joke of, I like punching, but Abigail is more than that. And Mm. this is an opportunity to show us that she is more than just her desire to do good and her willingness to put her money where her mouth is, or rather to put her body in harm's way, much as she will put her body in harm's way in one of the later chapters we're going to discuss. While it's true that a good portion of her speech is the words of Catherine, someone we already know is very gifted in speaking to an audience, her success in overcoming her uncertainty and speaking her heart and mind shows us that she is progressing in her personal arc and hints at the kind of person 
she will become, specifically as a mentee to Catherine Holloway. It's gratifying to see the next step on her journey that we saw her begin in secret rooms. She attempted to resolve a difficult, perhaps unwinnable situation in New Athens through dialogue, and she came up short. It wasn't necessarily her fault, but it was nevertheless a wake-up call as an experience. In this chapter, she gets to feel the boost of knowing that she said the right thing in the right way, and that it made some sort of positive difference. It Mm. isn't exactly anywhere near the same level or something that she can apply a comparison to with the circumstances of New Athens, but it's nevertheless a success that cements her progress. In sort of making these observations, it occurred to me that New Athens provided Abby with something akin to her Kobayashi Maru test. Mm. It was an exercise early on in her career that explores new frontiers that confronts her with something that she was perhaps never going to be able to navigate in a way that she could consider it a victory. What she takes from that is all important and it determines the kind of public facing agent and protector that she will strive to be. And Annie is there to witness the outcome in both situations. I think that associate with the Kobayashi Maru is particularly spot on. But in listening to you talking about this, can you guess what it made me think of? (sighs) I'll get the jar. (laughs) To be point of fact, yes, it reminded me of the West Wing. But the quote that's used in the West Wing comes from a different piece of media altogether. Hold on, let me just get this right. Is it Deep Space Nine, Greg? Because like, oh no, no, no! Have you found a way to just synchronize all of your common reference material? No, no, no. In point of fact, the media in question is 1968's *The Lion in Winter*, a movie about King Henry II, as played by Peter O'Toole, and Duchess Eleanor of Aquitaine as played by Catherine Hepburn. I've never seen the movie, but given that it includes a much younger Anthony Hopkins and Timothy Dalton, I find myself curious enough to investigate further. The quote comes from a scene after King Henry has decided to put his treacherous sons to death, and we see them in their makeshift prison. I turned it on just as they got to the scene when Richard, Jeffrey, and John were locked in the dungeon, and Henry was coming down to execute them. Richard tells his brothers... Not to cower, but to take it like men. And Jeffrey says, you fool, as if it matters how a man falls down. And Richard says, when the fall is all that's left, left, it matters a great deal. It matters a great deal. Hmm. But yes, Mm -hmm. that was brought up in relation to President Bartlett specifically having to face a situation where... He's going to look bad. There's there's no way to salvage the situation, so the only thing he can do is take the defeat gracefully. For those people that are not Trek fans, the Kobayashi Maru is meant to be a Starfleet test of character. It presents aspiring leaders with a no-win situation in order to see how they handle defeat. We are therefore comparing Abby's experience with Mary Sampson in New Athens as being something akin to that. And the mm-hmm. big point in Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, is that Kirk cheated the system because he said, I don't believe in a no-win situation. 
uh, that he mm-hmm. always will find a way to snatch a victory from the jaws of defeat. And that's a very understandable message that is mm-hmm. emblematic of Kirk's character. But the simple mm-hmm. truth of the matter is, is that even in heroic stories, winning, as mentioned before, often requires a certain cost. And mm-hmm. specifically in The Wrath of Khan, Kirk and his crew do succeed, but at the cost of losing Spock. Now, in the preparation of these notes, Mm. I was tempted to draw a parallel between Kirk and Spock and (laughs) Abigail and James. Now, it's not one-to-one. Abigail, for many reasons, is not like Kirk, but that specific part of Kirk's character of, I don't believe it in a no-win scenario, I don't think actually applies to Abigail. I think Mm. that she is painfully aware of consequences and that Mm. they are not something that she can steer away from inevitably with enough willpower she fights tooth and nail to try and do the right thing but she questions a lot of it every step along the way and that human spirit that sort of impulsive drive and that almost sense of bravado is quite kirkian but then you have the parallel of James being her Spock and that does fit quite well Yeah. though there is this thing that as much as he is positioned as the logical half of the brain of this duo that he and Kirk form he's also like has this human element to him that has more presence and more necessity to who he is than he may initially realise and James as we've gone over many times before is not an android. He is Mm. not someone who acts like input-output. He does have a human element side to him. And we are going to go over some of the very human responses that we see him have in the face of challenging turmoil and trauma. That's a really good pull, honestly, the idea that Abigail and James are not unlike Kirk and Spock. And I wouldn't have associated that necessarily because I know that Alex has had a problematic relationship with the Star Trek franchise in general. But then I remember that he really liked the J.J. Abrams Star Trek films. And that dichotomy is very present in, at the very least, the two films that I've seen, which I know that he regards very highly. There's this feeling that for as much as there are flaws and strengths of them individually, that it is together that they bring out the best in one another. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I was going to try and divide the last recording evenly, but as it turned out, this was the natural stopping place of our discussion of Chapter 17, so what can you do? We'll see how the rest of our conversation goes for Chapters 18 through 20, because even if I'm no longer a self-imposed deadline, the shorter individual episodes are the quicker I can get them to you. As this episode was about a performance put on for an audience, here too do I offer up a song about a ritual performance that's near and dear to my heart thanks to my mother. Not to mention, the Celtic themes of the artist dovetail with the music of Titanic, and that movie might be part of the reason this song hit the Hot 100 in 1998. Until next time, this is Lorena McKennett with The Mummer's Dance.
Thank you.